This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to another episode of On the Fence Physio your favorite podcast for asking all those hard-hitting physical therapy questions. I am your host, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist in the D.C. and Maryland area. I am joined tonight by my cute, my cuddly, my curious co-host, Matthew Owens. How are you doing tonight, Matt? I'm doing excellent today, Andy. It's uh, great to be back here discussing the intricacies of physical therapy with you. How's life out in Washington, D.C. these days? Oh, we are having a grand old time. The All the cicadas have uh, left us, thankfully. They were, uh, they were a stunning example of nature's ability to adapt, um, just like our patients are able to adapt to the needs that we put on them. I'm glad they're gone, though. Did you? Um, eat any? My dog had her fair share. I did not eat any. My dog ate several of them, and uh, became popular in the area to have your little uh, mesh bags that you put over your dog's face, so they would couldn't couldn't eat any more cicadas. Ooh! So look at that. We had the pandemic, 2020. We wore face masks. Now the dog gets to wear face mask. I'd heard that cicadas were toxic to dogs. Is that correct? They. Are they are and can definitely cause some digestive issues for sure. So you have to stay on top of that for a while. Yeah, brood X. Other than that, it's a, yeah, it is it is summertime. We are in full summer swing. It gets swampy out here. It is a actual physical swamp, not just a political one. <laughs> the humidity is uh, something else. Yeah, we're not out in out in the desert, that's for sure. The Midwest humidity is a thing. But we might be in the in the desert uh, this coming February, right, Matt? We might be reconvening for a CSM in person. Yeah, now San Antonio just isn't doesn't quite have the same ring to it as Orlando for the hundredth anniversary celebration <laughs> of the APTA. APTA. Um, started by Mary McMillan in 1921, or um, you know, all that good stuff. But I think I'll, I'll take San Antonio with you in, in uh, February of 2022 um, as a as a win, especially with everything that's happened over the past year. I I say what we should do is I got, I was mailed very uh, informally my uh, OCS pin that I was hoping to get put on stage. So I think we could find a stage somewhere, um, ambush it, and we could pin each other. You want to bring yours? <laughs> I'll, I'll bring my pin. I bet we could find uh, a fellow OCS. I bet, I bet we could even get the president of the APTA to pin it on our shirts. 
and she she'd be all, she'll be all about that. Oh yeah, she is a listener of the podcast, so I definitely sure. think that we could get that work. <laughs> yeah, it's go Tigers, LSU all the way, you know. So go Tigers. Okay, well, all those wonderful um, bits aside, we do have a discussion um, board question to answer for June, and that was about mobilizations, joint mobilizations. When do you use them? When are they good? When are they not so good? We have fun doing them. We are about about to pop off here and discuss some things about mobilizations. Let's get cracking. Let's get cracking. First of all, to define these things, joint we we're trying to narrow the scope because there are lots of different manual therapy things out there. We weren't going to try to tackle the beast that is manual therapy, but we just want to talk about joint mobilizations, which are you know kind of fit into that Maitland model of treating uh, joint kinematics that we have these accessory motions that pair with our physiological motions you have to consider the concavity or the convexity of the joint surfaces that you're working with you have to um, apply certain motions um, certain amounts of force with different varying degrees of intensity and amplitude and frequency in order to create um, the positive change that you want to see in your patient and I actually pulled up a uh, Maitland uh, presentation that he gave to the University of, let me check this real quick, um, Texas Southwestern in Dallas. And, and uh, I was reading through it, and it was a lot of the things I remember, remember being taught in T-School. I was like, oh, yeah, all these things. And what he did is he waited till the very end of the um, – we got eight objectives in here. We're uh, 30 slides in, and he has one slide titled, uh, Does It Work? <laughs> That's the heading of it. And we have four citations, the only four citations in the entire um, lecture. And, you know, just – you know, for funsies. And these are dated in the 2000s, 1998, 1995, 2000. I picked the, uh, I picked one of the newer ones and it was, uh, end range mobilization techniques and adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder joint. A multi multiple subject case report was the article. And, um, the, uh, quote that he pulled from it, from Nicholson, and this was in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, was the only effective treatment modality for adhesive capsulitis is mobilization and exercise therapy. Very strong statement. For an article that had a sample size of seven, four men, three women, and all of them were given mobilization and exercise over a three-month period, and they all got better. (laughs) <laughs> seems like the point of view might be a little bit restricted. It might. You know, that, you know, just doesn't seem as tight and neat of an article as you might think it would be to draw such a strong conclusion. Well, I like to play fast and loose with my mobilizations, and I just do them for <laughs> all my patients. I think that they all need to be mobilized. Um, if... I'm a therapist coming to you, Andy, and say, like, I feel like I need to put my hands on all my patients and that if I'm not doing some type of manual joint mobilization therapy, 
I am not practicing at my full scope as a physical therapist, and I'm just not providing the value to my patients. If I, you know, if I just give them education and exercise, like it's, it's just not good enough. <laughs> you have, uh, over the fence, you've went across some, somebody else's yard and you've gone over a completely another fence. <laughs> What's happened here? Um, yes, I don't want to get too biased in this because that's our point. We're trying to present lots of information, but it does kind of seem like some of these things, some of these um, very biomechanical explanations around um, manual therapy but specifically for this, you know, keep our scope podcast, joint mobilizations, they might be fading from popularity. They might be fading from the current um, practice patterns, or at least the narratives that we create around joint joint mobilizations. Would you agree with that? Disagree with that? I would disagree that it's fading from practice. I think I think it's still as prevalent as ever, if not even right. more so. But I think. The point about the narrative the, the around it, but the yeah, yeah, but why people are saying that it works is more what I'm what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I think for sure the narrative has changed at least. In, you can't nod on a podcast, Matt. That's <laughs> right. I have to, I have to <laughs> verbalize this. I can't. Yeah. So no, for sure. I think even from school and, and I think our education, they did a pretty good job of. I mean, obviously, we got introduced to the quote unquote classic Maitland grade one, two, three, four, five. And this is what we're trying to do with slides and glides and rolls and all those types of things. Right. And then as we get into practice and especially through residency as well, and you read the research and listen to um, people who know way more than I do. And the narrative changes from these intricacies of upslips and downslips and rolls and glides to more of, Hey, we're just going to get a little bit of movement input into the neurological system, into the joint to either modulate pain or possibly make something less stiff. And that's basically it. Right. Um, I, I'm definitely hearing a lot more and a lot more of the more current literature is talking about some of these like more neurological, neuromuscular effects of these joint mobilizations. And I always find that curious that, you know, like we're, we're just, we're chasing after efficacy, right? We're trying yeah. to understand the mechanism by what, but that what we do, how it actually creates the effects that we see. And I appreciate, appreciate that. I appreciate that people are trying to figure that out. I just find that it might be hard to kind of say that one intervention affects all these patients the same because in um, my teaching of students, I, I, I take a very um, Socratic method of teaching and I just ask a lot of questions because I assume that my student actually has a lot of good knowledge coming into the rotation. I, my job is just to get them critically thinking about what they know. And um, just this past week, dealing with a um, patient that had limited shoulder range of motion, you know, active range of motion was limited passive range of motion was limited about the same and I was just trying to walk my student through how would you figure out you know like what is limiting what is limiting their motion and I do find that maybe that's where we get a little bit of confusion is saying that joint mobilizations are going to work for all these people whereas whereas maybe the specificity like if you're 
mechanism, right? Is that there's some kind of antagonist muscle maybe that's, or pain response that's limiting motion, right? Some kind of neuromuscular component. And you're doing a treatment that addresses a neuromuscular like inhibition or you're dealing with an overexcitation or whatever framework you're trying to use, then you should be, you should test it in there. But how do you know that that's what the limit to motion is? So my, my student was trying to tell me that it was, it was a, um, it was more of an arthrokinematic thing. Well, the, 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 you know, they couldn't abduct because their glenohumeral joint wasn't sliding well enough. And that's why they want to do slides. And I said, how do you know how much it's supposed to glide? Uh, how much is as, how much is it supposed to glide? You know, like can you measure that? You know, can you can you object objectively look at that in any way? Like, how do we know that's the limiting factor? And he said he doesn't know, and he was ready to just like throw up his hands and just you know like not do the thing anymore. And I said, all right, here's what we're gonna do. So we're gonna we're gonna look at a peripheral thing. We're gonna say like if there there. Um, if maybe a two joint muscle that was also limiting this motion was limiting, you know, if it was a more of a muscular thing, then if we put the peripheral part of the joint on slack or on, on tension, we'd be able to change how much range of motion we see at the proximal joint. Yeah. He's like, okay, yeah, we could do that. I'm like, okay, so if that's the same, then we can rule that out. I was like, we could look for, um, antagonist muscle contraction by maybe palpating, or we could do do some kind of EMG, EMG activity to see if there is any antagonistic muscle contraction. And then we could say if that was a limiting factor, right? And he's like, oh yeah, we could do that. So I was like walking him through the process of, you know, and I was like, maybe it is, you know, because I think he was really convinced that I was going to say, hey, it's definitely not the sliding and gliding. But like I, what I was trying to get him to, I don't know what it is and that we don't know what it is as a profession was limiting motion most of the time time. So how are we going to improve the motion at a joint when we don't even know for a fact what is limiting that motion? <laughs> Welcome to that's the world of physical therapy. No, that's <laughs> no, and I think what you bring up is a good point is we're, we're searching for a justification and typically we, I would like just a one nice neat answer for this is why it works. And this is what it's doing at a physiological level, neurophysiological level, um, arthrokinematic level, those types of things. And I think what we see in the research is that we chase a single answer. Typically, we get conflicting results. And then we go to the next thing, the next answer, the next answer. And typically, what I also see in research is we go to more and more complex answers that are really yeah. harder and harder to prove. Um, and I'm sure there's probably a, a term around it, but it's like the, the more complex your model, almost the harder it is to say that, oh, that's not right. I don't know. So like, as we're getting to these neurophysiological impulses and those types of things, like, I don't even know, I honestly don't know how we even prove, quote unquote, prove some of those things. But um, at the end of the day, I think that critical thinking piece and really trying to, in your own mind, walk through, why am I doing what I'm doing? And then after I do the intervention, how am I going to assess if it has any benefit to the patient is the simple way, but also, you know, probably the, one of the better ways to decide, all right, should I continue to do this or not? Sure. I, I can, I can deal with some ambiguity. <sighs> Been out long enough now that I, 
I can uh, handle that. And I, I understand. I agree well, with you, Matt. Don't, don't worry. I know you've been out a long time, but with my manual therapy, joint mobilizations, I'll put it right back in for you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so to your point, when we can at least assess properly if the effect that we were going for has been established then we can say that at least the treatment we have chosen to do with that patient at that time did make a positive effect and it is valuable. Um, I think the value can be debatable as to, you know, what benefit it was for what cost, because if the benefit could have been achieved through the treatment of a less skilled provider doing a different intervention that requires a lesser, I don't want to say lesser degree of education, but a cheaper, maybe a cheaper degree of education. Can I say that? Like yeah, from a healthcare spend expenditure, and right? So, What's well, the cheaper cost for the healthcare system? Right. Know. Or the cheaper cost is for the healthcare system. Because like if me doing my joint mobilizations to my adhesive capsulitis patient is more expensive than an athletic trainer or a personal trainer giving some stretches or other mobility exercises to do and there wasn't any significant change in the benefit to the patient and i would say that the value of what the personal trainer provided was actually higher because the cost was lower yeah same, same talked, benefit for less yeah. costs yeah same, same yeah we've talked about value scare a lot but so i'm not here to debate whether or not um joint mobilizations are value-based care Let's talk a little bit about what we found um, research-wise, you know, because there is so much literature. So we definitely had to handpick. We had to cherry pick. We realized that. We realized if you you might have your favorite article, you know, dear listener, um, on joint mobilizations and why they're good or why they're terrible or why they're lukewarm, and that's fine. And please share it with us after the fact. We love to read it, but we just. Um, picked out a couple ones that we found interesting that we could have interesting conversation around. And Matt, you found one about the noise that you make when you mobilize. <laughs> Not the noise that I make when I'm like, you know, complaining about my arthritic thumb, but uh, <laughs> yes. the noise the patient produces, I guess. Yeah, that was... Their, their grunting sounds. Their, their grunting sounds. No, it's like you you can look up and find all sorts of interesting novel uh, research articles on joint mobilization, the effects of joint mobilization, what happens when joints are mobilized. Uh, the particular one that I um, stumbled onto and got sucked into was from uh, our friends, the chiropractors, trying to decide if they could figure out exactly what levels the noise, the cavitation, the pop, whatever you want to call it, was coming from with these cervical... I prefer soda now because I'm on the soda. East Coast. Soda, that's right. <laughs> um, so crack one open, it'll be good. Um, so when in their cervical manipulation mobilization, basically the result of the article and all these kind of interesting novel ways of trying to put a microphone and figure out where things are coming from, basically said that uh, we can't really tell. It's coming from somewhere. It could be a lot of places more research is needed. Um, and that's honestly something I never would have even probably, I probably, I can say I never would have even thought to try to research and like mic up and figure out exactly where the noise is coming from. And 
the thought from their end was it's not even just joint. There's something else going on there too that's contributing to it, whether it's ligament, muscle, like it, it's just interesting to me that, yeah, I would have never even thought to try to pinpoint that. Um, in their research, they couldn't, so. Right, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe there are several other articles that have looked into the um, cavitation sound, and at least what I remember from school was that we've been told that getting the cavitation sound isn't even necessary, but patients do tend to like it. Yep, and that's the, if we're going back to that neurophysiological model, the quick end range stretch of that grade five mobilization is supposedly what's most important. Um, one of my lab mentors who loved manipulating um, for uh, my orthopedic residency um, spine things, he was like, that was his research. He was going to try to prove that the sound mattered because he's like, the patient, when you get the sound, whether it's placebo or whatever, the patient is like, yeah, that worked. Oh, yeah, that went in. Oh, yeah. When you don't get the sound, the patient, due to general public perception, right, feels like, oh, yeah, that, that didn't that didn't work. And then his thought too is besides placebo, just the whatever's going on in the joint, the, the release, the change in pressure, whatever it is, would create a greater neurophysiological response. No research to back that up, but that's okay. his theory. What okay. He wanted to prove so, that. so can we, can we, can we, can somebody, right, create a convincing enough setup where you can have patients that are getting an actual grade five. Um, manipulation done and they have headphones on so they cannot hear like sound soundproof headphones so you're gonna I'm sure they're gonna feel it right they're gonna feel maybe they'll feel the pop but give them you know no audit, actual auditory feedback right have some patients that are getting a grade five but have their auditory feedback they don't have the headphones on right have some people that are getting a grade one but in the same you know positions right and their headphones on, but they get an auditory feedback of a pop, right? You get some recording of a pop that's timed up with the, uh, with the therapist performing the grade one, right? But shouldn't cause a cavitation and then have people get a grade one and get no pop, but have the headphones on. I would, I would be down for that. I think the one, would that, would that do it? Would that one, do what you just, what you just said? I like thinking about methodology. Yeah. I think the one issue I can see with that is, the um, sound traveling through bone. So sometimes you hear a pop and no one else does because you right. sense that. So you'd have to assess. You'd have to assess yeah. how good your your sham was. So yeah. you would just. Speaking of which, That's, I, could, I would wonder if you just like if you just had everybody. It's like you basically, uh, but I, yeah, the sham would be like how can you tell if someone actually didn't cavitate? I guess you may look at the therapist thought they cavitated the patient and the patient thought they cavitated if there was like a correlation between the two because i was thinking like instead of headphones if you just had everybody like there was this well, little they sound should, they shouldn't cavitate yeah. with a grade one yeah right? that would be the thing yeah. yeah so you do a grade one but you you set everything up all the same you do the grade one there's no way they should cavitate because you're not going fast end range you're not even going to tissue resistance or whatever yeah i i, th I mean i think that would be as good a sham as i've heard Okay. And then you could assess your sham, right? You could then quit, you know, just quit. Were you in the sham group? Were you in the real group? Right? Cause that's mm -hmm. how you assess the validity of your sham. Well, guess what? I finally found the, the other article, the 
effects of joint mobilization and chronic ankle instability, a randomized controlled trial by David Cruz Diaz in 2015, um, where they said that their joint mobilizations for chronic ankle instability were better than a sham and better than control. They set it up right. Well, what was their sham? So their, well, their intervention was doing the, uh, little mulligan ankle dorsiflexion thing with the strap, right? So you have the strap that creates a, one of my favorites, Calcrow glide, right? So what did they compare it to though? They compare it. So their, their sham was they put a block around the patient's ankle so that their ankle could not dorsiflex, could not move, right? So their tibia, their talcrow joint was held still. And then they passively bent and straightened, you know, flexed and extended the knee for the same amount of time, you know, time match thing. And that was their sham. So somebody with ankle pain had their ankle held completely still and had a therapist move their knee up and down. And then they said that was their sham for measuring pain. <laughs> and they did do the Y balance test, which I did find, you know, that was a bit more of an objective thing maybe. But also there's a bit of confidence in there too. So if you had confidence that your ankle was better because of the mobilization and then the other group is like, well, my ankle didn't move at all. Like I don't feel any more confident. I don't know how good of a sham that was, and I don't know how how they know how good of a sham it was because they didn't assess in it. They didn't quiz their people. Are you in the real group or the sham group? Why couldn't you just do that last little bit? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, and with that, I would have even gone as far as saying, like, if we're taking, taking a specific mobilization type thing, let's sham uh, ankle dorsiflexion, talocrural, and instead let's do like a, cake, a calcaneal mobilization. We're still on the ankle. We're kind of twisting things around a little bit. Maybe make the patient think that we're still somewhere in the vicinity of the ankle instability. But yeah, that's a great question. And that's where like that going into probably the, would have had the same effect and they didn't want to show that. Yeah, well, and that's I think going into the methodology is, is important. It's tedious, right? And I appreciate you bringing that up because like, oh yeah, this article says this, right? I read the abstract, I read the conclusion, perfect. It, it confirms my biases. And then you read the sham and you're like, oh yeah, that sham was terrible. Great. Um, so to anybody that I'm going to be filling out a CPI for in the future, you might be listening to this podcast right now. If the first thing you read of an article after you're done with the abstract is the conclusions, we're not going to do well. We're just, no, it's just not going to go well for you. Please read the <laughs> methods. Start there. <laughs> start at the methods. Start at the methods. Every time I tell every student that I'm like, we're going to start at the methods. Let's see how they set things up before we think anything about their conclusions. Okay. And then the other one that I wanted to talk about was the, uh, was the one in rheumatoid arthritis. Now, I definitely find that rheumatoid arthritis is something that's like, hey, you know, like I am looking for other ideas other than exercise therapy because if we're putting a lot of load through these joints, we can frequently flare them up. So I am definitely like with that patient population, like, all right, what is else is there I can, I can do to help their pain, their disability um, when exercise therapy might not always be, you know, like the best thing here. I'm willing to give up my exercise therapy. I'm not stuck on it. <laughs> I don't define myself as an exercise therapist. So they did grade one and two mobilizations of the MCP in RA patients. And in just two weeks, they met the MCID for pain in both hands. They only treated one. 
and in their blinded assessor, they had increased joint space in both hands, regardless of which one was treated. So I'm going to ask you the question. So we're going back to, you know, that would be like, okay, if that is a, an effect, we'll Mm -hmm. say like, let's just, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with and say, yeah, the joint mobilization caused that effect. The mechanism couldn't be just arthrokinematics. There's no way. Because how could something that only affects the arthrokinematics of a joint cause increased joint space in the other hand? <laughs> and then that's when we get all crazy and start talking about the brain and neurophysiology and those types of things. But interesting. So what did or, they... What or, did, or just the patient feels better, so they start moving more. <laughs> yeah. What, did, what was the um, conclusion from the authors about that interesting finding? Yeah. No, they went into the brain. The brain. Okay. <laughs> So uh, for anybody interested in reading more of that article, that was Joint Mobilizations of Hands of Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis Results from an Assessor-Blinded Randomized Crossover Trial. That was by Levitsky, and that was published in the Journal of Manipulative and Physiological Therapeutics in 2019. Okay. Quality read. Nice. I like it. So I think there is something to be done with joint mobilizations. I think they do have a place in physical therapy because there do seem to be not just one niche group of patients, but several groups of patients that tend to have a positive effect when we're doing these things. I do think that we just need to try to be good stewards of our literature, of our evidence, and realize also that we have a moral obligation not to create Um, false narratives and false confidence around interventions that we might not necessarily know how they work. So claiming, you know, boldly to our patients that we're going to improve how their joints slide and glide, and that's going to make their motion better. Maybe that's not the most ethical or moral thing to do, but it does not mean it's unethical to perform that treatment saying, hey, you're probably going to feel better after we're done doing this. Yeah, very good. So with that being said, what's on the docket for our next discussion thread, Andy? I would like to talk, we um, definitely like to talk about the use of healthcare resources and um, very much hidden within this terrible um, pandemic we've just experienced with COVID. Well, I want to say just experienced. In my neck of the woods, it seems like it's all over, but I know that a lot of places in the country and in the world are still being ravaged by it, so I'm not trying to be insensitive about it. But there are other pandemics that are kind of happening underneath the radar, underneath the cover of this um, COVID one. And the opioid crisis is, you know, while it might not be headline news anymore, is very much still a problem. And in our pre-show discussion, yes, there is some planning involved in these things, Um, Matt was reminding me about how early access to physical therapy um, in low back pain can reduce the use of opioids in low back pain patients. And I thought that would be a very interesting discussion for us to have for our next podcast, um, talking about when is physical therapy good for 
reducing negative health outcomes. I think that's a little too broad. So I do think we need to try to tailor down to the opioid crisis. When is physical therapy going to be the thing that helps with reducing opioid use in patients? Um, the Choosing Wisely campaign, the PT Choose PT First campaign, a lot of these claim, hey, you know, we're going to reduce opioid usage by using physical therapy, by using other interventions. I think that we could delve a little bit more into that. I'd love to, to hear people's thoughts about that. Please get involved with our discussion thread on Twitter. Um, follow us at at OTF Physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O, and comment your thoughts, your experiences, any literature that you want to share on how physical therapy can have an impact on the opioid crisis. Sounds good to me, Andy. I think that'll be um, a interesting discussion and one we probably argue quite a bit about, whereas I feel like sometimes we agree too much, so I think that'll be good. Well, if we argue too much, I'll just have you take a chill pill. <laughs> All right, Andy, I appreciate it. It's good talking with you as always. Uh, I likewise, Matt, have a great evening. <laughs> <laughs>